This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Drapshow. Hello. Melanie Plenda has worked as a staff reporter and as a freelancer for newspapers in Michigan, New York, New Hampshire, and Alaska. Since 2018, she has been leading one of the most important recent developments in local journalism as executive director of the Granite State News Collaborative. Thank you for joining us, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. The Granite State News Collaborative, you know, we wouldn't be here today without it. This podcast is a project of the collaborative. So we're very grateful personally for this specifically, but also for all of the work that the collaborative does. So thank you very much for for all the work that you do. I wanted to... Likewise, we wouldn't be here without our amazing partners. So <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Such as the FITS. That's right. So Melanie, I was wondering if you could explain what's the elevator pitch for the collaborative? How do you explain it to people who are unfamiliar? I always hope for a really long elevator ride because it, it can be a little complicated, <laughs> but essentially the very basic explanation is it's a collaboration. It's a collective of local news media, educational organizations, and nonpartisan civic organizations who've all kind of agreed to work together to get more news to more people who need it. That's basically what it is. And there's a variety of fun ways that we do that. We do that through sharing news stories each day on the the issues that impact Granite Staters the most. We co-produce projects together, which means we co-report and and work together. We coordinate on big things like elections so that we are avoiding duplication, which again, gets more people, more news that they need. And then the collaborative itself has a team of really great freelance investigative reporters who can work on larger, more time and resource intensive projects that sometimes local news outlets, they absolutely have the talent to do and and the like desire to do them, but often don't have the staffing or the resources to be able to do that. So we can fill in that gap for them and we can give them these really great reporters for short periods of time to work on these projects that are really important to communities and the state as a whole. And then all of that gets shared out too. So that's us in a nutshell, but there's, there's, lots to it, but that's the basic pitch. How big is the collaborative, both in terms of its memberships and its staff, and how is it funded? Sure. So in terms of its membership, we have more than 20 local news organizations, and that includes like some of the non-traditional news organizations, like we include uh, you know, community groups like Citizens Count, which is nonpartisan, but produces really great articles on legislation. They're one of our partners, but we have 20 all across the state and it stretches all the way up to Berlin and all the way down to like Manadot region and the seacoast. We have New Hampshire Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Television, traditional legacy media, non-traditional, you name it, it's in there. So we have lots of membership staff. I am the only staff member uh, officially, <laughs> but our reporters, we usually work with a stable of about 10 regularly producing freelancers or who regularly produce for us. And we are entirely funded by philanthropy and the the kind hearts in New Hampshire of, of individual donors. So we've been really fortunate that a lot of philanthropic organizations, well, a growing number, I'll say, of, of philanthropic organizations around the state have really seen the value in supporting local journalism and how important it is to our communities, to our democracy, not to be hyperbolic, which it's not. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so we've been very fortunate in that sense, but it's always everything we do is only done because of generosity of people who believe in this work. What's your annual budget? Also a good question. So it usually hovers around 200,000. We have, it's a, it's, I'm not dodging the question. We have an aspirational budget that we would love to reach someday. Uh, But we usually in actuality run around like 200,000 to 250,000. And I would say something I'm really particularly proud of is the vast, vast, vast majority of that goes right into reporting. Like it's actual like money that we're paying to reporters, to photographers, to editors. And that help is then going directly into our partner newsrooms. The only, like I said, we only have one staff person and, you know, kind of minimal overhead. We like to stay kind of lean. So the vast majority goes right directly into journalism. How did the collaborative get started? What's its origin story? Yeah. So it was a handful of journalists who basically said, wouldn't it be cool if we could all help each other? And so the founding members included Carol Robidoux, who publishes Manchester Inklink, Don DeAngelis, who is the chief operating officer at New Hampshire PBS, and Kristen Nevius, who is the director of the uh, Marlon Fitzwater Center. And there were a couple others um, also in the beginning who got it started. And they heard about a grant through Solutions Journalism Network. Because they started meeting and they were kind of like, well, how would this work and how would we work together? And there's a lot of stuff when like collaboration is always really good on paper. But then when you actually get into the nitty gritty, there's a lot of stuff you got to work out and figure out. They saw this grant from Solutions Journalism Network. They were able to get it so that we could we were sort of project based at the beginning. So we looked at behavioral health um, in the beginning and worked on that as a project with that grant. I was hired as a part time project manager in um, the fall of 2018 under a very different job description than I have now, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> and and then in 2019, I went to full time. So really how it started was we started with this project. We were all going to look at behavioral health. We did that for about a year. And really that first year was about getting our sea legs and how do you work together? How do, how do a group of individual businesses and organizations with their own needs and their own, you know, ways of functioning, start to try to trust each other and work together to find that sweet spot in the middle where it works not only for their outlets and their communities, but for everyone at the same time. And that was part of my job was working through that and working with our partners to kind of come up with that formula. And Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, the pandemic hit. And that was the thing that really focused us and it gave us an opportunity to really help each other through a time when all of our communities just desperately needed us. And we knew we needed to step up to the challenge and our partners did. I mean, without hesitation, they shared stories with each other. They shared tips with each other. And this was something that had not happened before in the entire year, really, that we had been already working together. And I just saw all of our partners come together in a way that still gives me goosebumps, to be honest. I mean, they were really, everyone was, it it was just a true commitment to the service of journalism. And and I was so proud of it. So at any rate, we were able to put together sort of a, a 
working structure and a model for sharing with each other and communicating with each other. And then out of that, we also were able to start uh, working together on our major initiative, which is our race and equity initiative, which takes a look at, you know, seven different pillars of, of everyday life, like economic opportunity and health equity and educational equity and police and criminal justice reform, all through the lens of race and equity. And we've been working on that since 2020 together. We definitely built this thing as we flew it. There literally was no instruction for how to do it because collaboratives were so new and still a new concept. And often, and we were one of the earliest ones. So often people who you might go to to like ask questions were like, well, actually, we were going to ask you how you did that. And I was like, oh boy, okay then. Well, <laughs> we'll guess we'll figure that out on our own. And we did. And I'm not a Pollyanna. Like it was really, it was hard, but Honestly, the partners rose to the challenge to to make it possible at all. It's one thing about the collaborative that's so fascinating to me is that it's this network of nonprofit news organizations, for-profit news organizations, all of whom are like intensely competitive with each other. As much as there is collegiality when you all show up at the same event, there's still at the end of the day where we are in competition with one another. What is it that I think you mentioned um, service to journalism with like a capital J journalism. I wonder what the, do you have any other insight as to what has yeah. been the secret sauce to, to get everyone to, to play nice? I think it's a couple of different things. I think that every news outlet, certainly the ones in our partnership, but I'm certain this is true of the few news outlets that are not in our partnership. I think every newsroom has been hit in one way or another by cuts. And these are cuts that I think that the, the journalists and the editors and the managers working on the ground, they're so hard for so many reasons, but mainly the main reason is because you know there's so much that you need to get out to people. You know there's so much that you need to cover that's important and you just can't because you don't have the people to do it or you don't have resources. And I think on a very basic level, we had to build a trust that one, that no one colleague was a special snowflake, that other colleagues were doing really great work. And I think the more we could put that work in front of our local news outlets and they could see, oh, this is actually really great work. And wow, if I did use this, that means that my reporter doesn't have to cover that thing. Instead, I could put her on another hyper-local story. So now you're getting that really important story plus the really hyper-local important story. And it's all by... It's all done by journalists that you now know and respect and can trust. So there's that. I mean, that's a good business reason to do something. If you're getting information out to people and you're able to do it with the same amount of resources that you would have, you know what I mean? And you can redeploy a resource onto another really important thing. So you're getting more to people. There's a good reason to keep doing that. And I also do think that I think it helps different outlets for different reasons. I think when they're able to have their their work, you know, be spotlighted in on NHPR or be spotlighted in Keen and it's happening somewhere else, I think that that raises everyone's awareness of those outlets. So I think that there's a lot of good reasons for it. I do think though, like I said, it took a lot to get there. And I think they saw that the competition in this case wasn't going to 
get the as good of an effect or as good a result as actually working together. You actually got a better result than if you stayed in competition with the other regional paper. You know what I mean? I also think that because there's so the competition that maybe existed 20 years ago, I don't know that it exactly still exists today because I think there are fewer outlets and I think that there are fewer outlets covering specific regions. And so I don't know that there's exactly the same competition. I'm sure individual journalists in their hearts probably would disagree with me, but, you know, but I think that that's probably true. You know, and lastly, I would point to the fact that there still is the competition that exists still exists. I mean, outlets can still get a scoop. Outlets can still get the breaking news story. Outlets can still have that experience. They don't share every single thing that's in their paper. It's a handful of things that they're sharing. And so the cost benefit analysis there is pretty good because you still have that and you have all this other additional content that you can get out to people and additional resources when you need it, when you know you have a project that you want to do, but you might not be able to do otherwise. So I think the benefits outweigh the, the risks there. Could you explain to me how that works mechanically? How is it that outlets can simultaneously share their product with with the other outlets, but also can still have a, an exclusive scoop? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, so mechanically how it works is we have a, a shared space for the content that gets shared out to partners. And I mean, it's, it's not super fancy, but I pull it into that shared space from the website. So it's once it's already been published, essentially. Occasionally, an outlet will send me something the day that they're going to publish it. But 99% of the time, they've already published it either in print or online. So I pull that in and then partners can can pick and choose out of that shared space what they want to run on their platforms. Where the partner choice comes in is I do regularly ask, like, I would say almost all of our partners have kind of given a blanket agreement. Yes, if it's a statewide of statewide impact, then you can take it. I try to keep things like hyperlocal stories that would drive traffic just specifically to to a hyperlocal site. I try to keep leave those out of our shared space. But then at any time, any partner can say, oh, could we not share that? that story, you know, either for whatever reason, like we really just want to keep that for ourselves or, you know, we put, we actually put a lot of money into this one and we really want to just drive and that's totally fine. There's no judgment about it. Like that's, that's every partner has every right to say, I just don't want to share that one. And that happens super infrequently, but when it does, it's absolutely okay. I make sure no one runs it. I, you know, as, as quickly as I can. And I mean, it's their work product, it's their work. And, and that's also the way that I look at this too. Like I try to treat every partner in, in the honest way that is money and time and effort that they are literally sharing with everyone else. So well, like, while our services are free to our partners, they are 100% are contributing resources and time to the collective effort. And in addition to like when they volunteer to to edit projects or lead projects and sit on committees and all that kind of good stuff. I hope that answered your question. It, it does. I mean, it's when I kind of step back from it a little bit and think about it, it's rather sort of wild. It's almost like if you could imagine a restaurateur going into the next restaurant, going into their kitchen, grabbing whatever, like a little bit of what's on the stove there, bringing it into their own restaurant and selling it to their patrons. Yeah. And essentially, that's sort of what's happening here with the collaborative, only it's not a two way street, it's a 20 way street. 
Right. I think because they're each partner, I would hope is getting as much as they're giving. And I think that that's the ultimate, you know, so in your restaurant analogy, you know, it would, it's more like, yes, I'm borrowing this dish right now, but I'm going to send the next 10 people who want dessert over to your restaurant, or I'm going to give them a coupon to your restaurant. So it's, it's definitely like, the food is plentiful around <laughs> to go around. So everyone's everyone's giving and getting, which is good. It sounds to me, as I'm hearing you to explain it, I'm seeing sort of like this longer arc of more and more financial pressure on small news outlets or in large news outlets. And then on top of that, there was like this acute crisis of the pandemic. And both of these sort of negatives created an opportunity or a real need for something like the collaborative and the collaborative happened to be in the really in the right place when the when that acute crisis landed. Isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> like literally in a meeting when that crisis landed where we like decided we were going to share stories. And I, I yeah, it's it, I still can't believe it sometimes to be honest and I've watched it. Like it's just it's amazed me at every turn. You couldn't have written this in in a movie people wouldn't people would be like, "Ah, come on." <laughs> right, exactly. That would never happen, right? Uh, but I well, on that point, I'm curious about your decision personally to join this collaborative before, you know, as as a staff person, before it had proven itself to be viable. Did you did you foresee what it would become? No, I don't think anyone could have. And I think that's part of the beauty of it is that it has organically sort of evolved to meet the needs of its partners. And in that way, it actually could serve as a model for for other organizations that want to do this, which is great. So when I personally took this job, I would had been freelancing for 10 years and had little kids and, you know, uh, one of my friends, an old friend was on the board and she, she even said to me, she's like, there's, there's this job opening for a project manager at a collaborative. I don't even really know what it is, but I think you should apply for it. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds right up my alley that all the uncertainty sounds perfect. But I just, I don't know. I wanted to take on a new challenge. I wanted to try something new. I think I was getting a little burned out on writing if I was being perfectly honest, because I was a freelancer and it's hard and it's a lot of scrapping and hustling that you have to do. And turns out there's a lot of scrapping and hustling you have to do in this job, but it was, you know, so all of those skills paid off, but just in a different way. But yeah, I uh, I think I was up for a new challenge. I mean, I, I'm the same person who I took a crime reporting job in Alaska because I've never been to Alaska before. So I mean, that's a little bit in my nature, I think anyways, the little bit of the unknown. And I think I liked that it was something that I could sort of grow into and, and learn as I went. And we kind of were making it up as we went. And that's kind of exciting in a way. Didn't realize how exciting it would be, but and, and in a way that gives you an ulcer, but you know, yeah. <laughs> so aside from the ulcers, could you, I was curious if you could explain what some of those early challenges were that you and your board members encountered and how did you find the solutions to them? I think that the very, right out of the gate, it was literally just trying to get, first of all, figuring out what it was at that moment so that you could explain it to partners so that they understood. And even once they understood, it was about, the first question I would always get was, 
okay, but how is that going to work? You know, so just the logistics, the mechanics of it would hang people up. And then I keep coming back to that trust piece because that is so important. And I, and the reason it's so important is when you are in charge of a news organization, you are 100% responsible what goes in those pages and you have to trust that whatever you're putting out there is accurate and fair and was fairly reported and all there's so much that goes into that decision making process and then here comes people who you sort of know it's a small state so we all kind of know each other you know but you really don't know how they're reporting on things until you start to actually work with them until you see their work every day until you see they're they're not getting called out or doing a lot of corrections or you know and now during the pandemic I think some of that was just the trust of okay well we need this story and let's see you know but I, I think that the more we worked together that was how we overcame that and I think that the logistics part I learned pretty early on that if I did my best to always getting everybody together in one room all the time to try to come to a consensus or a decision was not going to work. But I did want to know what was going to work for the most people. What would that consensus be? So I think especially early on, I took a lot of time to just talk to the editors, figure out what do they need, what's going to work, what's not going to work. Then I would take all that back, kind of hammer out a skeleton of a plan bring that back and okay, is this going to work? So some of it was just like a lot of legwork of getting to know the outlets themselves, getting to know what they needed, what were their strengths, what were their weaknesses, where could we fill in the gaps? And especially during the pandemic, the biggest challenge was everyone was just straight out with everything that that communication couldn't be there. Like they didn't have time to sit and have a meeting with me. And I totally got that, but I still needed, I felt like I still needed to get them what they needed. So sometimes it was really like trying to read a crystal ball, like, okay, I'm going to try to like get my, get my mind into Julie's head and see like, what could she be needing right now? You know? So it was, it was challenging. For sure. But it worked most of the time, I hope. And, and now we really do have a good, good communication system, good. And it was all just kind of trial and error. I wish I had a better answer for that, but it really was. I mean, I think we were, we were willing to kind of trust and try is what I always say. And like, not be afraid to fail. I mean, if it, if it didn't work, it didn't work. We'd try something else, you know, but we all just kept trying. So what's next for the collaborative? What have you got cooking? Well, we're going to keep on keeping on with any and all of those sort of data-driven projects and our race and equity initiative and working with our partners. And then our next big thing is we are we have a steering committee put together to sort of look at how might we create a community news fund. And there'll be more details on that, hopefully, if, if it comes together. But the idea there is, again, you know, how do we lift all boats? Because in a journalism ecosystem, that ultimately, if, if we can help one and we lift all boats, everyone in the ecosystem does better and our communities do better. So I think we're all working in earnest to see if that's something that we can make happen and make work. And aside from that, it's always the, the challenge of making sure that we have enough funding to keep doing the work that we're doing, helping our local partners as best we can and amplifying the voices that aren't being heard and uncovering those stories that need to be told. So yeah, more of the same, but even better, I hope. So what would a community news fund be? How how big would the, of a fund are you looking to build and how would that fund be expended? 
all good questions that we're trying to figure out. And that is, you know, that seems to be like a little bit of our motto. Well, it's never been done before. So why not? Why don't we do it? <laughs> so I think all of those things are things that we need to talk through and, and figure out, figure out the rules of the road and what exactly would it be and how big would it be? And, you know, I think that, yeah, it's, it, I don't know is the short answer to that question yet. So why build it then? What would it be? What would it be for? I think ultimately, I mean, yeah, I think like the idea behind it, if it, if we can figure out the nuts and bolts of it, I think what it would do is it would help the entire, I hate using the phrase journalism ecosystem, but it is like, it would help all the outlets in, in New Hampshire. It would help local outlets be able to do the good work that they want to do. So if we could, you know, in theory, it will help us to sort of bring in people and funders, you know, big and small who maybe are just journalism curious, but haven't contributed to local journalism, you know, in some ways the, whoever, however the fund works out, maybe part of that is just kind of going around, which is what we're kind of trying to do anyway, in some respects, when we fundraise for the collaborative, is we try to explain, like, journal, local journalism is not a nice to have, it's a have to have. And like, any mission that any organization cares about, any issue that any organization or community cares about, that's what we're there for. We are there to provide that information. And without that information, I mean, statistically, I, like you can look this up. The research shows, I mean, fewer people run for office. Your boards don't accurately represent your communities. Your bond rates are higher. If no one's minding the store, people don't want to move to your community. That's what we're there for. We have to be there and we and it's not a luxury item. And so trying to educate people about that, especially, you know, in a climate where people really are mistrustful of media and journalism in general. And that breaks my heart, to be honest, because I think that there have been some very loud bad actors in the media sphere, typically national, not to not to point fingers or anything. So that means we have to work extra hard to build trust with our communities because we live in our communities. We are part of our communities. We care about our communities. We fundamentally want what's best for our communities. And we serve that by giving people the information that they need. So I'm sure I'm preaching the choir, but it, you know, it just, <laughs> it gets me very, I'm very passionate about it as a human being because I, I, I really feel like I, I did not go to journalism school. I backed into journalism and I fell in love with it because I saw the good that it could do. And I sort of, I sort of count my blessings every day that I get to do a job like this, where I can explain that to people. And I can, mm. I can let my passion flag fly when it comes to journalism, because it's so important. It's so vital to every aspect of our lives. And so if I can help, or if, a, if having a fund where we have a person who goes out and explains that to people to help all of our outlets do better at serving their communities, uh, and that's why we're all gonna work to try to hopefully make that happen. Awesome. So I will close it with a question I ask all of our guests. If someone was interested in joining a career in journalism right now, what advice would you give them? Oh, that's a good one. I, you know, mine is a really nerdy answer to that. Like my nerdy answer to that is learn everything you can 
about the basics, right to know laws and documents and data. And like, don't skip over that part because that part is where like a collection of numbers, but like within there are the human stories. Those are real people who are impacted by the things that you're looking at. You being able to take the time to go find those things means that, you know, some mom who's grappling with a job and two kids and can't make it to a meeting, like she's going to still have that information. Because you went to that meeting, you looked up those documents, you took the time to explain an issue to her when she had the time to look at it. So I would say, remember that, like, those are not the boring parts of the job. Those are the parts, those are the fundamentals that you need to know, because that hits people where they live. And and it's so important to them. So I would say, learn how to do that. That's a really good answer. Excellent advice. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much for your time, Millie. It was great talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. It's amazing. Thanks for having me. Sure. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support. 